Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 3? Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin reading at uh, verse 20. So Mark 3, verse 20. And we are working through the book of Mark. And Mark is one of the books of the Bible that is eyewitness testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so we are not simply reading instructions on how to be saved, but we are watching as someone else saves us. We are watching our Savior save us. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a, demon is, uh, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister, my brother and sister and mother. Thus far God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have once again gathered us here to hear your word. And we thank you that you have not only given us your word, but Lord, that you have made us your children. And Lord, we pray that you would now speak through your word to us as our Father to your children. And Father, if there are any here who are not your children, who have not turned from their sin and trusted in the gospel, Lord, I pray that today would be the day when they do become your children. And Father, I pray that you would make me faithful to preach only what your word teaches. And Lord, would you make us all faithful to hear your words and to trust and follow them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you noticed that this passage here, there's a few different conversations, but did you notice this bookend effect? This is one of the, uh, one of the, uh, the most obvious ways that a scripture writer is going to let you know what his purpose is. When there's certain things that happen and they are bookended by something at the beginning and at the end that are quite, very, quite similar. Did you notice what, the, what they were? In verse 20 uh, and 21, we have mention of Jesus' family, and his family is 
calling for him or trying to get him. And then again, you see in verse 31, you have a similar situation. And what is this teaching us? Mark and therefore the Lord is setting us up to focus on something here and focus on the question of the household of God versus the household of Satan. The household of God versus the household of Satan. And Jesus is going to be very clear that there is really no middle ground. You are either in the house of God, in the family of God, or you are in the family of Satan. You are either beloved by God as a child, or you are under God's wrath as an enemy. You have essentially the same relationship with God that, that, that Satan has more or less. Or you have the same relationship with God that Jesus has more or less. Some people are going to hear this and they're just not going to care. They have no desire. They don't care if they're in the household of God. They don't want to be part of God's household. They're not interested in being God's child. They don't care if they're on his team or not. One of the things we see that's pretty disturbing in our day is the rise of Satanism. Did you notice this? In the news, it's this new obsession with this. In the new Satanists, they say, no, a lot of them are actually atheists. But they're embracing this satanic language that says, even if God was real, I hate him. And I don't think he is real, but I hate him if he is. So some do not care, do not desire to be part of God's household, part of God's family. It's like Satan does not want to be God's child. He does not want to be in God's household or his family. But there are some who do care, who really do, would, would really want to be the people who are part of God's household. They would not want to think of themselves as an enemy of God. They would, not other, they would not want other people to think of them as an enemy of God. But the problem here is that they assume that they are already in the family of God, but aren't. Maybe it's because they go to church. Maybe it's because they have the Bible and they do Bible things and they've read the Bible and they know generally what's in the Bible. Maybe they know all the Bible. The people in this book, in this, uh, this account here, had memorized the Bible. And maybe that is because you're in a Christian home. You assume, yes, there's a bad side, a good side. There's the household of God and there's a household of Satan. And I'm definitely in the household of God because I'm in a Christian home. It's less of an issue now, but even in the past people would have assumed they're in the household of God because they belong to a Christian country. A country that is more or less run by Christian principles. And a country should more or less be run by Christian principles, but, by, but the fact that you belong to a country that's laws are Christian-ish does not mean you are in the family of God. And our first point is this. The blessing and insufficiency of your birth family. The blessing and insufficiency or incompleteness of your birth family. Let's look at the first two verses here, 20 and 21. Then he went home. It's Jesus. 
And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That's thus far God's word. Now, Jesus' family here had the benefit of knowing who he was. It was a great benefit for them to know who Jesus was. Mary certainly knew because she had the angel announcement. She had been visited by an angel telling her that her son, her firstborn son, would be the son of God, the redeemer, the Messiah. She certainly knew that he, who he was because of the virgin birth. She knew that she had not known a man before she conceived and bore Jesus. She was witness to the angels and the, the visit of the wise men who themselves were sent by God. Jesus' brothers who grew up in the same household as him, they knew his character. If anybody could testify to Jesus' character, it would have been his own brothers. They knew Jesus' sinlessness. They knew Jesus' kindness. And yet, did you notice, they were frustrated with how his life and therefore how their lives were shaping up because of him. Now they're no longer able to live quiet lives. They can't even have a decent family meal. There's too many people around. They're quite upset about this. They're not able to live normal lives. Their lives, after Jesus began his public ministry, changed dramatically. Their lives became centered around Jesus. His fame, the crowds, the people who loved him and the people who hated him. This affected their lives dramatically. And so here we see something that Mark hits over and over and over again. Knowledge about Christ is necessary, but it alone does not save. In order for you to have true faith, saving faith, we see three things. Some of you know what these three things are. There's three elements, three things that describe real faith. The first is knowledge. The knowledge of the gospel. The knowledge of your need of salvation and the knowledge that Christ provided it. That he did this by living a perfect life. That he did so by dying in your place and rising from the dead. To know this is essential. Not to know everything about God. But to know these things. It's important for it to be true faith. You need to know the gospel. The next is agreement. Not only do you know the claims of the gospel, you're aware of them, but you agree those are true. Yep, those are true. I know they're true. Because you have knowledge of other religions, you know what the, maybe know what the tenets of Islam are, or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or Sikhism. You know what they are, you just don't think they're true. But true Christian faith is, yes, you know what it is, and you agree that it's true. But there's a third thing involved. A third way to describe real saving faith. And that's trusting. You count the cost and you consider Christ as an incomparable treasure. You hear what the gospel offers and you trust God to give that to you. Friends, Satan has the first two elements. He knows the facts of the gospel better than anyone other than God himself. He knows it. And dear church, he agrees that it's true. He doesn't doubt that it's true. He knows it's true. 
So he has knowledge, he has agreement, but he doesn't trust God for the gospel. He doesn't consider what the gospel offers as the most amazing, incomparable treasure. And the heart of a fallen man will never do that. Non-Christians can know the truth. They can even agree with it. But they will not ever agree and trust in the fact that Jesus will reconcile them to God. They need the Spirit of God to transform their heart and give them that trust element. And so we see that there is great benefit, massive benefit from belonging to a Christian family. You know this is true if you grew up in a Christian family. Maybe it was a great one. Maybe it was quite imperfect. But you know there's a great benefit to belonging to a Christian family. Because in this family, you're going to have knowledge of the law of God. You're going to have knowledge of the gospel. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be somebody who cannot remember the first time you heard the gospel? What a wonderful gift for Christian parents to give to their kids. They never, they can't even remember the first time they heard the gospel. It's just part of their life. Being raised in a family that loves God's law. That loves his commands for marital faithfulness. That loves his commands for honesty. Yes, they break them and they, they repent in turn, but they is a family where the law of God and the gospel are loved. How much pain is the person spared because of this? You get to enjoy the gifts of the family of God, enjoying spiritual gifts of other people. People with spiritual gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit, serve you and help you. We see that there is a parental responsibility to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is true in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6. There's this passage that says, no matter what you're doing, tell your kids about the Lord. Uh, when you're, what about if we're away from home? Yes, then. What if we're close to home? Also then. Uh, what if we're working? Then too. What if we're resting? Also then. What if we're eating? Then too. What if we're about to go to bed? Also there. Teach your kids. Raise them as Christians. And we see this repeated in Ephesians, in the New Testament, Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents are required to give this blessing to their children. Knowledge of the gospel and to be raised in a home where we do we keep the law of God and we trust the gospel. There is a massive gift to be born into a Christian family. A massive gift. But it's not sufficient. You need new birth. Let's read Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Turn with me to John chapter 3. This is the preface to John 3.16. Familiar with John 3.16? Everybody is. Let's read John 3, 1 to 15. John 3, 1. Now, 
There was a man of the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees were religious leaders. They, had, they loved the law. They, they, they had memorized it and they were all about it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do. And signs means miracles. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or from above, could mean both those things actually, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things you, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life thus far. I know it's almost a crime to read verse 15 and not go to verse 16, but what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is that to be alive physically is not sufficient. We need to be alive spiritually. To be born physically is not sufficient. You need to be born spiritually. Even then to be born into a Christian family is not sufficient. Great, but not sufficient. You need to be born spiritually. But you need to embrace everything that you have heard from the gospel, from the word of God, everything that the, te- the Holy Spirit testifies in the scripture, you need to embrace that by faith. And you need to abandon an autonomous life. The word autonomous means me and by myself. I can do this on my own. Autonomous. Like a self-driving car. I get to, it's, it's autonomous. You don't need to tell it what to do. It's just going to do it. Autonomous. I know that autonomous cars don't have minds of their own. But autonomous essentially is meaning this in, this in this regard, is that I can live an autonomous life without God's help. And one way of being autonomous is saying, I know I need to be in the family of God. I know I need to be in the household of God. I know that there is one God. I know that he exists as a trinity. I know there's heaven. I know there's hell. And I know these things. And I trust in myself in order to get there. I can get there. I can ascend into heaven by my own good works. I want to be part of the household of God. And I'm going to get there on my own. And Jesus says, no one's going to get there unless they came down first. And I'm the only one who did. So you have to abandon your hopes of getting into the kingdom of God on your own. Or even just with God's help. 
You also have to abandon your thought that you just automatically are part of the household of God. You're automatically part of the kingdom of God. But there's a second, there's a second autonomous approach that you need to abandon if you're going to enter the household of God. And this, this is the autonomy of, I want to be able to make my own decisions. I want to be able to live as if I were God. I want to be my own king, my own master. I want to do my own will. I would like God's help, of course. I would be very upset at him if he didn't give me the blessings of being a child. I would be very upset at him. But I certainly do not want to be a child of God in every sense. And both of those have to be abandoned. See, every single person is born in Adam. That means what Adam did, we inherit. We take after him and we also inherit his heart. And Adam joined the rebellious kingdom of Satan. And that included his heart. He begot children like himself. And Paul is going to say in Romans that if you need proof that this is true, how many people die? Okay, well then we inherited Adam's guilt. He's also going to say that sin is proof. You're telling me that you didn't inherit Adam's relationship with God as an enemy? Well then why do you sin? Being Jesus' mother or brothers was not enough. Being Jesus' countrymen was not enough. Every person, even they, needed to be rescued from their own wicked hearts. And they needed to be rescued from their own wicked citizenship. And so do we. Which is why we're very grateful that we have our second point, which is that Christ came to cast you out of Satan's kingdom. Let's look at verses 22 to 28. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed... He may plunder his house, thus far God's word. I want you to notice that Jesus' fiercest enemies did not deny his miracles. The eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection do not include the fact that his enemies denied Christ's miracles. They didn't, they didn't just have access to the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. They did. They actually had access to the Messiah himself. They watched him do these things, and yet they found a way to disregard these miracles. And so they claim that Jesus is doing these things by Satan's power. Now, not exactly, but they are similar to the words of his family. His family, you might think, we're not exactly sure what's going on here, but perhaps they're saying, well, yes, Jesus, Jesus is the only one in our household who is always faithful to God's law, but that's because he's crazy. He's just too simple. You know, 
Mature people like us, we realize that sometimes you've got bend to bend the law a little bit. Yes, he's casting out demons and performing miracles, said the Pharisees, but that's because he was doing it with Satan's power. Now, I want you to see here that they didn't say this because they were convinced it made the most sense. It's foolish. Jesus points this out. Your argument's pretty silly. You're not taking this very seriously. You don't even believe what you're saying. It's not the most convincing thing. It's just, it's most convenient to believe. It was the preferred explanation which explained the reasons why they hated him. It allowed them to avoid coming to grips with the fact that this meant that they were enemies of God. God is here and we hate him. Well, he's, he must not be God because I wouldn't hate God. This is very similar. This, this desire for any explanation, even if it's silly, any explanation other than the fact that Christ is God. This is true for blind Darwinian evolution. It's not because it's the most convincing. This is true of the LGBTQ revolution. The nonsense things that they have now been forced to say in order to hold on to some of their beliefs that God is not a lawgiver, God hasn't designed us, and God doesn't have expectations. The absurd things, the folly that they are saying, it's not because... They believe they're the most realistic or most convincing, but because the only other alternative is to worship God. And a human heart, apart from the Holy Spirit, will not do that. Will not want to admit that we are enemies of the God of all creation. And so Jesus explains why the theory that he was using Satan's power, it makes no sense. Because Satan would never willingly do this. And then Jesus explains why he came. The reason which his demon casting out displays were actually a sign of. And that is to rescue guilty people out of a guilty household. Did you notice that? Jesus came to rescue guilty people out of a guilty household. To take people out of Satan's household and put them into God's household. And for that he uses a wonderful parable. The parable of the strong man. Now, in this parable, the parable of the strong man, Satan is the strong man. Okay? Satan is the strong man in this parable. And he's got a massive house, and it's a house full of stuff. And what's the stuff that his house is filled with in this parable? It's people. Satan's house is filled with people. People are in his house. And they're not there against their will. They're not there because they don't really belong there. They're just there because, you know, it's against their will and we have no other choice. Their hearts desire this. And in order to plunder Satan's house, in order to plunder the strong man's house, you need to be stronger than him. If you ever needed to rob a very strong man who was home, and I'm not giving advice as to how to commit robbery, but if I was... There was a very strong man, a very well-armed man, who had a lot of stuff, and you wanted to rob his house. You'd have to deal with him first before you took his stuff. You'd have to do something with him. You'd have to bind him, or you'd have to kill him, or you'd have to do something. Again, I'm not giving advice on how to commit 
murder or robbery. But in order to plunder his house, you'd have to be stronger than him. And this is one of the beautiful things we see in Scripture. And we see this in a song, too, written by Martin Luther. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Doth ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Jesus' ministry binds the strong man. He binds Satan. And how does Jesus bind Satan? Does he get a golden lasso and tie him up so tight that he can't? Does he physically? No. How does he bind Satan? Well, there's no claim on anyone that Christ elects. Satan no longer says, hey, that person is unpaid guilt. That person is unpunished sin. That person actually belongs in my kingdom because they've done the same thing as me. Nor can Satan point to the law of God and say, look, see the law? You made a law, God. You made it for humans. And still not one of them has kept that law. The law that you gave to your servants is still not fulfilled. Satan can't do that anymore now that Jesus has come. Satan can't say of the elect of God's people, their sin's not punished. Satan can't say, their death hasn't been conquered. Satan can't say, the law hasn't been kept. Because Jesus did all of those things. Now, Satan was in a way bound in the Old Testament too. Abraham, David, Esther, Ruth. They're all examples of people who Satan had no claim on. But that was because of promises that God would one day pay for their sin. But now the claim is even stronger because he's already done it. In the Old Testament, this was restricted mostly to one nation, one house. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to join the household of God, you would have to join Israel. You join that house, that nation. Now, of course, that didn't automatically make you one of God's children, as Jesus says to the Pharisees. You also need to be born again. You need to be born from above. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to believe in the gospel. But you did have to join that house. You had to leave your household and join that household. You had to leave your nation and join that nation. But in the New Testament, the New Testament, that family restriction is gone. And you don't need to leave your house your family, or your nation to join the household of God. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, Satan was given mostly freedom to deceive the nations other than Israel. He could act as if the whole world was his territory, even though it wasn't. He could act as if the whole world was his territory other than that parcel of land in the Middle East. But in the New Testament, in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. And Jesus is no longer leaving the nations to Satan. There is now no safe place for Satan to operate. No longer free to keep the nations from hearing and believing in the gospel. Revelation 20 verse 1. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, before a fight breaks out, what we need to realize is that in this passage and in Jesus's illustration, there is an already and there is a not yet. We all must need to realize that. There's an already and there is a not yet. And we can have lovely discussion and debate over good food and drink about that. But there's an already that we need to embrace. There is no restriction from the nations. You do not need to leave your nation, your family, to join the household of God. It is no longer inconsistent to be a Greek family and a Christian family. It's no longer an inconsistency to be a Canadian family and a Christian family, where in the Old Testament that would not have been consistent to do that. To be a Moabite family and a Christian family. You to leave the family of the Moabites. And so now... That is true for us. The other thing we need to see is that the Great Commission has been incredibly successful. How many nations do we have represented here in this room right now? In tiny little Transcona, Canada. How many languages are now praising God and hearing the gospel in their own language and trusting in that gospel? How many families are now being raised as Christian families in every part of the world? The Great Commission has been successful in times of blessing. When when kings and rulers recognized Christ as Lord, and the Great Commission has been successful when they didn't. Even while the nations rage and have been fantastically deceived, think of our own nation being fantastically deceived. We can't even tell the difference between a man and a woman incredibly deceived by Satan. And yet look how successful the gospel is at ripping people out of the kingdom of Satan and putting them into the kingdom of heaven. How delightful. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 28, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But we also have to realize that there's a not yet. There are a lot of false gospels out there. Many have come from even from churches that taught falsely and sadly had to leave them because they were being misled. Satan got a hand in these churches. The enemies of the church are still breathing threats. Our poor teachers in our church can hardly go to a teaching conference without hearing about how Christianity is such a wicked thing. Not only that, there's temptation to sin in our own flesh. The enemy is not just there, it's also our own flesh. We, have, we suffer with, we, we suffer. We are tempted to hatred and lust and envy and sloth. And so it is right for us to ask, is there going to be a time before Christ returns when the Great Commission will become more successful? When there are less attacks, less temptations, less insanity in the unsaved world? We should all hope so. 
But we must not deny the reality and goodness of the, con, uh, of the current miraculous success of the gospel and the current miraculous success of the Great Commission. Otherwise, we're not going to preach. We're not going to assume that people will be converted. We're not going to assume that Jesus can take people out of Satan's grips, out of his deception, with the simple preaching of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. You're mine. He walks into that house with the gospel preach. You're mine. He just takes, without any effort, Jesus takes people out. And if we don't understand that, we will retreat and we will complain and we will not evangelize. The point here is that you need to be cast out of Satan's kingdom. You all, we all do. Regardless of, who you, regardless of who your parents are or where you were born, and only Christ can do that. And Christ is sufficient to do that. So do not try to bind Satan. If anybody tells you how to bind Satan, you should be polite, but tell them that they don't understand the gospel. We don't bind Satan. Satan was bound by Christ. We enjoy the freedom that Christ has given, but we flee from his lies and his temptation. We reject them because he is not our master. Christ is. And do not doubt the power of the gospel to plunder Satan's household. Tell it to anyone. Nobody is too deceived or in the wrong kind of family that they will not be saved by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. A third point. The family of God will be forgiven all sins, but no sins will be forgiven those outside of God's family. Family of God will be forgiven all sins, but no sins will be forgiven those outside God's family. Let's see this in 28 to 30. Jesus speaking, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit, which just means he is a demon. Now, why did Jesus warn the scribes against blaspheming against the Holy Spirit when they were actually blaspheming him? Do you wonder that? That doesn't seem like, what's going on here? Verse 30 tells us, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? To wow people? To give people superpowers? No. The work of the Holy Spirit is to show that Jesus is Christ. And to call people to believe in the gospel of Christ. The word of God is the word of the Spirit. It is his speech. Jesus' miracles was the Holy Spirit testifying, this is the Messiah. It was promised in the Old Testament that when he would come, the Spirit would make you know who it was. It was him. And so to reject Jesus as the Messiah is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Is to hear what the Holy Spirit says about Jesus and say, no, I think that that's dumb. Out of his mind, that's stupid. Or even worse, that's evil. And the person who rejects the Holy Spirit, who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness. To reject the gospel doesn't turn you into an enemy of God. To reject the gospel does not turn you into an enemy of God. Because everybody's born 
as an enemy of God. Our hearts prove this. It doesn't move you from God's household to the household of Satan. Every sin can be forgiven. And every sin will be forgiven if you're covered by the blood of Christ. If you are plundered by Christ out of the household of Satan and taken into the household of God, every sin of yours will be forgiven. But no sin will be forgiven for those who do not trust in Christ, who do not hear and trust the Holy Spirit's words about Jesus, which is the word of God. Dear Christian, your sanctification, that means your transformation as a Christian, it will not be complete before you die. It won't be. You will be struggling with sin. You'll be sinning today and you'll be sinning tomorrow. And yet all your sins will be forgiven if you are in Christ. If you die before you've licked a sin, before you've conquered it completely, you will be forgiven that sin. Did you notice he says all sins will be forgiven? Your past sins? You haunted by your past sins? Wondering maybe that, maybe that, was, that was the point where there was no point of no return. That was it. I'm done. Your past sins are forgiven if you're a Christian. Your current sins, your battle against the old self, and even, even your future sins. But, dear unbeliever, none of your sins will be forgiven. Not the big ones, and not the little ones that you would consider as maybe petty crimes, or maybe, maybe the ones that you think God should just get over. Because every sin is damnable. And forgiveness of sins is not, some, it's not just God getting over those sins. It's not what it means for God to forgive, it's just him getting over it. Not really, it's not God realizing that you did your best under the circumstance. Forgiveness of sin is God holding your sin against Christ. Not him just getting over it, but him holding it against Christ, where God treated Christ as an enemy on the cross. And so if you reject the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus, which is the gospel, you're rejecting your only chance at forgiveness. The family of God will be forgiven all sins. But no sins will be forgiven those outside of the household of God. Our fourth point here is this. Christ's family does God's will. And here we have the, the end of the bookends here. Focusing again on Christ's family. 31 to 33. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my, brother, my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now his family believed they had a right to get him to do their will. And they missed the point. That having, having God as your father, being in God's fa- uh, household, does not, is not so that he will do your will, but that he, you will do his. And they thought that that meant they can control him, that they had a right to make him do their will. And the people around him, they seemed to agree with 
Jesus' mom and his brothers. They seem to be, well, it's right, they do. I mean, they're your mother and brothers. They, you just got to do what they say. They've got a claim on you. You got to do their will. But that's not the case. He says the disciples who trusted in him, they, they were his family. And he says his family does his will. That's what it would have looked like to be naturally God's child. Find a person who only did God's will. That's somebody you could say is God's child automatically. But that is no one other than Jesus. And so how does God make the family a family of his will or of his law? First of all, he justifies us. He forgives our sin by punishing Jesus for it. He gives our record to Jesus and he gives Jesus' record to us. And was Jesus' record perfect? It was perfect. He did God's will perfectly. He said, Father, not my will, but yours. And that is credited to you if you're a Christian. But it comes more than that. Because now he gives us a new heart. A new heart that desires God's will, that keeps his commands. And so now we have the spirit of Christ in us saying, God, your will, not mine. See, salvation is trusting in Christ to make you a person of the will of God. To make you a person who loves God's commands, who loves to do his will. That's what you're asking him to do. You're trusting him for that. Now you see why Satan would never want that. But this is what salvation is. Trusting in Christ to make you a person of the will of God. First to forgive you, and then also do, to transform you, to transform you. And so this passage really leads us to a question. Are you a child of God or an enemy of God? What is your relationship to the will of God? Do you live by your own will and say, I just want to do my will? And yeah, I, I mean, I believe in Jesus and I'm, I'm, I want him to forgive me but I really don't, I'm not asking him to help me do God's will, but to just sort of say, what you're doing is great, I'm happy with it. Do you agree that you naturally belonged in the kingdom of Satan that Jesus is destroying? And yes, he will destroy it. The people who are blaspheming Christ with their words and actions, the nations that are raging against him, that kingdom will be destroyed. Do you believe that you naturally are part of that? That's where you naturally belong? That you are in the same category as those people naturally? Do you love the thought of being treasure plundered by Christ from the house of Satan? Do you love that? Oh, he grabbed me. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he grabbed me, he rescued me. Because if you do, then you are God's child. You are part of his household. There's, there's not a class of people who Jesus tolerates, but who deny him. They have no forgiveness. But there's also not a class of people who Jesus saves and merely tolerates, but I wouldn't call them my brothers and sisters. There's, there's no place, no Christian place, no position as a Christian where you are forgiven and tolerated, but not beloved as a brother or sister of Christ. And dear Christian, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. You have been made new to be somebody who loves God's will and repents when they don't. 
And you're not merely a citizen of his kingdom. He has affectionate brotherly love for you. So dear church, let us walk as the household of God and call the nations to join because Satan cannot stop them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness to us. We confess that while we were enemies, you sent your son to die for us. And we confess the, our only hope was that Christ and Christ alone would defeat the work of Satan and take us along for the ride. Forgive us for the ways in which we have taken pride in something about ourselves rather than trusting in Christ. And Lord, would you forgive us for the ways in which we've embraced life outside of your household? Lord, I pray you'd grant repentance. Lord, I pray you'd grant success to the gospel as is proclaimed and evangelized through this church and bring many more sons to glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.